Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 87 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, here with Tad, and pleased to uh, be joined tonight on this special episode uh, by Jonathan Amarillo, a good friend of mine from our Chicago Bar days. He's at Taft Law, and he's a partner in the firm Chicago office and co-chair of the appellate group and has a wide uh, experience. He recently appeared before the Supreme Court of the United States. We found out about that on uh, LinkedIn and followed up with them and asked them to be on this show. And so welcome, Jonathan. Thank you, gentlemen, both for having me. It's a pleasure. Our pleasure. Yeah. And the, and the case that he was uh, in front of the Supreme Court to argue uh, was an appeal from the Seventh Circuit, Bradley Ledour versus Union Pacific Railroad Company, a case involving some statutory acts involving railroads and locomotives and other uh, cars and what was really at focus here uh, was the definition and various uh, analyses of the term in use. And so we'll get to that. Um, and so, Jonathan, you want to tell us about some of the underlying facts and how it got to uh, the Supreme Court and how long you and Taft have been involved in this case? Sure. Um, so the underlying facts are pretty straightforward. The, the plaintiff alleged that he was... Um, uh, it was a slip and fall accident, essentially. There, a train came in from to Salem, Illinois, from Chicago, Illinois, on its way to Dexter, Missouri. Um, when the train arrived in Salem, it was disassembled. Uh, the locomotive was included with some other locomotives in what's called a consist, which basically means locomotives that are connected to each other, but separated from rail cars, so it's no longer part of a train. They were parked on a sidetrack. Uh, Mr. The, the true crane went the train crew went home. Uh, Mr. Ledour was assigned to um, inspect the locomotives and to uh, assemble a new train that would go on to Dexter. Uh, during that, he alleged that he slipped on a small spot of oil that was on an exterior walkway and was injured. Um, on the, was it on the locomotive, the oil spot, or was it on the ground? On, on the locomotive on an exterior walkway and we, we can get into why the location of it matters um, maybe later it's a it, one of the small detail but potentially important down the line no pun intended so th those are the uh you know the the underlying facts um in terms of the issue if you give me a little rope i think it would probably benefit your audience to just get a little a background on the, the law because, please, you know, the please talk, discuss the the various statutes at play because it was hard sure. to follow because we're not familiar with them and they use yeah, the works. acronyms which judge easterbrook hates so yeah. give us the give us the you know the statutes and, and really what's going on because we don't we're not sure. familiar with this at all help us out well on today's uh today's oral argument i listened to it was about paga and and justice thomas towards the end of the uh, very long argument that had to do with california and whether there's arbitration subject to state laws but he uh would have made Judge Easterbrook proud because he said, I guess you call it PAGA, 
I would just say P-A-G-A, but in any event, the Paga. <laughs> so in any event, Jonathan, please tell us about these statutes in this suit. Uh, sure. So, you know, the, the case deals with laws that date back more than 100 years um, to the last century or the century before the last century, really, the, the railroad's heyday. Um, you know, when railroads, they weren't terribly well regulated um, and workers who were injured didn't have any re- legal recourse beyond filing a standard negligence suit against the railroads. Uh, and so in the early 20th century, Congress passed the FELA or FELA which required railroads to maintain a reasonably safe workplace and allowed injured workers um, to sue their employers under a relaxed negligence regime. The biggest difference being, you know, while they still had to make out all the elements of negligence, uh, the burden of proof for causation is extremely low. And the FELA also eliminated some common law um, negligence defenses like fellow servant doctrine and things like that. A few years later, Congress passed two additional statutes, and those are what's at issue here. The first of those was the Safety Appliance Act, or the SAA, and later the Locomotive Inspection Act, the LIA, which required railroads to maintain vehicles and locomotives, respectively, um, in a safe condition, and said that if a worker's hurt because the railroad failed in its duty to maintain that equipment, those vehicles, in a safe condition, then it would be strictly liable. In that narrow circumstance, uh, it set up a you know negligence per se regime essentially, but FELA is still the default regime for injuries. It's only if you know an injury occurs because of this kind of specific safety defect does strict liability attach. Um, but and that specific the, that specific safety defect is a defect in the inspection of the locomotive or the train generally, or so how no. Yeah, and you know th- these are incredibly Byzantine regulations and statutes. So, um, you know, I I apologize if I accidentally go down some rabbit holes on some of this. But generally, the SAA um, it, it was really designed to apply to uh, couplers because most injuries, you know, 100, 120 years ago happened during coupling accidents when vehicles were connecting together. You know, workers would get essentially um, crushed between them. Uh, or their, you know, their hands would get crushed between them oftentimes. Um, and so the Safety Appliance Act says, like, you have to maintain couplers in a good condition, grab bars, you know, to climb the side of the train, need to be secure, that kind of thing. The Locomotive Inspection Act, as its name indicates, was really geared more toward inspections and was specifically um, designed to apply to locomotives, as opposed to the SAA, which applied to all locomotive or all railroad vehicles, including locomotives, but only for those specific things that were included in the SA, like the grab bar problems, like the coupler problems. Um, and part of the LIA, as I said, was that, you know, you know uh, uh, railroads need to be diligent about inspecting locomotives to ensure that they're safe. Uh, and there's regulations that backfill all that, but you, we don't need to get into that. Really here, the, the key issue is that Congress said that the SAA and the LIA only apply to vehicles and locomotives, respectively, that are, quote unquote, in use. And that's the key term here. That's what this case is really about, what that term use means in the context of the LIA and locomotives. What does it mean, in other words, to use a locomotive? Um, the plaintiff, uh, as I said, claimed that he slip and fell and... Um, uh, we already went through the facts on that, but the, the question was essentially whether the locomotive that he was on during that slip and fall was in use. Remember, it 
Uh, it was stopped in a rail yard. Right. It was detached from its train. It was disassembled. The crew had gone home. Crew had gone home. He was part of the next crew. Uh, was sitting idle on a sidetrack. It was going. It was or was going to be. There's some factual dispute as to whether it was turned off at the time. Um, because it was going to run dead to Dexter, Missouri, and running dead just means it was going to be pulled by another locomotive as part of a train. It was just going to be like a box car, essentially. Okay. Very heavy be box car. Very heavy box car. Yeah, I think. But the stat was that they weigh, they can weigh up to 400,000 pounds, pounds, according to the sounds. Yeah. According to the Solicitor General. Yeah. Um, and so it was going to be totally non functioning. You know, it was literally just along, going to be along for the ride because it was scheduled for some uh, necessary repairs in Missouri. Um, so the question was whether, whether that constitutes uh, use and therefore triggers strict liability. So what's the. Go ahead, Dan. Sorry. I, I guess one question would be, what's the consequences if, if this injured employee, if the slip and fall is not covered under these acts, then is he out of a remedy or is there still a, a remedy, but just not under this negligence? So if, if this was, if this spot of oil was the only defect that he could point to under the LIA or the SAA, uh, and the, the you know the locomotives were not in use, and he just he can't get strict liability. Okay. He defaults to the FELA's standard or modified negligence regime, I should so say. He'd have to show now, some negligence then. He'd have to show some negligence. Now, um, the wrinkle there is that uh, he brought an FELA claim originally, but the district court ruled ruled that the the accident was unforeseeable as a matter of law, and the Seventh Circuit upheld that decision. And when he went for cert um, to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court decided not to take up that issue. So generally, an injured worker would have a negligence claim. Here, he simply failed to make one out, so it's all or nothing for him. So so let me make sure it's clear. There were two questions that were submitted on the petition petition for certiorari, correct? Correct. One dealt with the two strict liability claims under the SAA and the LIA. And one question dealt with the negligent, the ordinary negligence claim under the FELA. There was, and so that that's a good question because uh, I know it's it gets really confusing when you listen to the argument because the other side's talking about the SAA so much. There's no SAA right. claim here. There's only an LIA claim. Oh, okay. Um, and then there was. Pardon me, I was confused. <laughs> well, and you know what? Kind, I was too a little bit. Um, uh, because you, you wouldn't think you'd hear so much about the essay because it's not technically a claim here. Um, and then there is the, the FILA claim, but that's that's out and gone. Okay, so the FILA claim is gone, and so all he's left with is the strict liability claim under the LIA. Correct. And so it, I think you kind of laid out the procedural history a little bit. You guys won both claims at the district court level? So Thompson Coburn. Uh, okay. The, they won it, um, the case arose out of Southern Illinois, and they won it down there on, in front of the district court. We were hired to handle the appeal in front of the Seventh Circuit, and we, uh, we got the affirmance 3-0 there. But, the, and so the, but it was, they knocked out both the FEL, FELA claim as well as the LIA claim at the district court level, and those were both affirmed at the Seventh Circuit. And then the only question that was um, taken by the Supreme Court on the writ was the LIA claim. Exactly. Okay, so go ahead, Dan. 
I was just going to ask who the, who, the, who the panel was at the Seventh Circuit. Um, well, most importantly is uh, Judge Barrett. Uh, that would that would play a oh. role later in the case. Um, but it was written by it was written by Bill Powell. Okay. Is, is she allowed? Is she recused on the on the Supreme Court? She did recuse herself. I, I would expect she was. I mean, even if yeah. she would, even if she hadn't been on the panel, um, she she would have probably recused herself in all likelihood. But the fact she was on the panel, she, it, you know, the fact she was on the panel, she kind of had to. It seems. Yeah, as as much as any Supreme Court justice needs to recuse themselves on anything, I suppose. But it is it would it is standard <laughs> practice uh, to recuse yourself if you were on the deciding panel below. Okay, and so the there was a lot of discussion. Uh, about two things. One, comical, which we'll get to, uh, but also important factually, because there's a lot of hypotheticals. And one that, you know, um, in terms of what it means to use, a lot of discussion about draining fluids and disconnecting the battery. What in the world is that all about? Uh, I mean, I, could, I, mean I, I know more about how to shut down a train or a locomotive then I, I, I mean, I know all, apparently so does, so do all the justices, because each one of them at various points <laughs> mentioned draining fluids and, and uh, disconnecting batteries. So help us out. What's that all about? Uh, excellent question. I don't know, because none of that was in the record. The government was completely shooting from the hip when they were talking about that. None of that whatsoever is in the record. When I say the government, I should add that the government um, came in in the case on, on the plaintiff side here. So they both got argument time from the Supreme Court. Right. Was the government- Playing the game. Yeah. Was the government asked to give their opinion or did the government intervene? The government was actually asked to give their opinion on cert, whether cert should be granted. Um, they you know, did what they do. They talked to both sides and they talked to the regulating agency, the FRA, and they came back and they suggested that cert be granted. And then it, once that's done, um, you know, they were in the case. As okay. technically as amicus, but as arguing amicus. And, and so that now let's, now let's, so this whole business about the draining, that wasn't in the record in terms of whether that had been done or not in this particular case. And does it, how does it play into the analysis or does it, does it play into the regulations? Is it anywhere? Does it play anywhere in the, the analysis? Is it anywhere in the, in the underlying case law of discussions of this? This, this just came out of out of out of out of, out of thin air. Yep, that's exactly okay. right. It's not in the regulations, at least not that I'm aware of. And you know, spent a long time with this case, so I feel like I would have been. Um, it wasn't in the record anywhere. I'm not really. I'm not aware of any case law, certainly not at the circuit court level, that discusses this. Uh, you know, it, the the thing that the government was trying to do was essentially. Let me take a step back really quick. The plaintiff's position is that anytime a locomotive is outside of a repair shop, basically, it's in use. It could be sitting on a siding for months. Plaintiff says that's in use, as long as it's not in a roundhouse, which is the, you know, the industry uh, talk for a repair shop. Uh, the government's view was slightly uh, more expansive. They said, well, you know, trains could, or locomotives could be in, in storage. And so what the government kind of got a little bit cornered on, I think, during their argument, was what does that mean? And so, so much of her argument was eaten up by trying to define storage, uh, which, you know, by elimination, I suppose, was an attempt to define use. 
And she started saying things like, well, you know, if you drain all the fluids from the car and you, you, you remove the engine or I don't even remember at this point, the other, the other things. And that, that all of that was an attempt to draw lines because the, the justices wanted, you know, I think when they took this case, they wanted to draw some lines as to what was and wasn't use and uh, found out after the fact that that's just a lot harder that, and, you know, the government, to their credit in the same argument admitted that railroads have different procedures for you know how to um put locomotives in storage and whether they drain fluids and that kind of thing so uh you know at the end of the day i i don't think that argument will will really prevail at least i hope not i mean one, one, so, of, one of the other things they talked about was was uh, locomotives being able to turn themselves off and, and and they can do that and turn themselves on but, automatically but, but yeah. again I was having trouble figuring out what the heck in use, you know, the, and, and being how, used for things other than pulling things like powering right. up the lights, which was right. one thing that Justice Chief Justice Roberts kind of had was snark. I mean, yep. it's like it, it's it's got to do more than turn on the lights to be in use, doesn't it? I, I you know, if you talk about the restaurant, the restaurant example of the car that's off on the side, and that was yeah. originally brought up by Justice Alito, uh, and then built on by just Chief Justice Roberts. And I, and that again, that goes back to the court's attempt to draw some lines because you know under plaintiff's theory and the government's theory, um, as long as it's not in a repair shop, it's being used. So Justice Alito and Justice Chief Justice Roberts said, okay, so you're telling me that if you take a locomotive and you park it on a sidetrack and you you know uh, set it up as a restaurant for workers and you're using its electricity for lights, that locomotive is in use. And, you know, the plaintiff had to say yes, um, which I think it's a difficult position to defend. So apropos of your discussion or your point that this particular locomotive was going to be dead, uh, dead, dead, what? What was it used? Dead. Running dead. Running, Running dead. dead to on to Missouri. We now know a lot about Justice Thomas's motorhoming habits. <laughs> oh, um, and... How did and, and near all the justices at various points brought up his motorhoming habits, which I think everyone kind of knows he has a motorhome. Yeah. But tell us about that issue and how that played into the argument, particularly when he's pulling his car behind his motorhome. So I, I think it's a particularly apt analogy that he came up with. Um, you know, he was talking about if, if I have my RV. And I hook up my car and I'm towing it you know, to various locations. Is that car, as opposed to the RV, in use while I'm towing it? Uh, and the plaintiff had to say yes, because that's yeah. really the only thing that's consistent with their position. And Justice Thomas just wasn't buying that, at least as far as I can tell. And, you know, the, the, the analogy holds perfectly here because you had a locomotive that was just going to be pulled by another locomotive to its next destination. And at the time it was sitting still. Dan, to your question before, I think the reason that they were getting into, you know, it was the locomotive turned on and off. That was part of the line drawing exercise. Well, maybe we can say that the locomotive's on, if the engine's right. running, you know, it's it's in use. But you really can't with the technology that exists now because they turn themselves on and off for uh, efficiency reasons, battery operational reasons, and a bunch of other things. So that that's really not very useful. And But here you were just going to have a locomotive that was um, – you know, being towed essentially by another locomotive as part of a train. And we, we think that's not in use because it's not providing tractive power. It's not doing what a locomotive is meant to do, to go to what you were saying before, Pat. Locomotives exist to push and pull other vehicles. 
And and, the, and and it seemed like some of the justices were making a distinction because again, like you said, the the SAA come up a lot. You know, the imperi materia canon that that the yeah. appellant started with. Like you got to use in use there, and 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 again, I think uh, to your point, Jonathan. I think I think Justice Thomas with his analogy. I think even Breyer. I think a lot of them, the, the justices, were kind of like the SAA is broad for everything. But right. I think I think it was Chief Justice Roberts and, and and others joined in, saying, "Well, wait a second. Locomotives are different, right? They're not. It's not like just a boxcar. It, it has, it does things. But again, how far are we supposed to take this line, right? And, and right. is everything going to be in use? Because if everything's in use, like you said, if it's on, then it's in use. Or, you know, it's it's the Erie ca- Street Cafe, but it's you know it's in use because somehow you know." It's being powered. I mean, it, it it just seems like it's so expansive that it's a slippery slope of where you go with it. That, uh, that's exactly right, Dan. And it, the reason the plaintiffs want to go there, um, just to be clear about it, is because they're, all of the Supreme Court's jurisprudence um, on this issue is in the context of the SAA. And it's, it's admittedly, you know, um, at least at first glance, I would say, favorable to the plaintiff. Now, when you dig into those cases, you see that they all involve movement, which is our key point. Like, a tr- you know, this thing's got to be moving and providing traction. This is power. the Brady and the Otis cases that, that were brought up. Yeah. It is. And, you know, Brady Brady may be the exception. Brady um, can be sliced and diced a, a hundred different ways. Um, and, you know, as Justice Kavanaugh seemed to be indicating, maybe, maybe it's time for Brady to be revisited. Um, but uh, Not Brady versus plan- Maryland, folks. Brady involving a train. Yes. <laughs> yes, yeah. the, right. the, the, the much less famous and interesting Brady. Um, exactly. And uh, so that, that's why the plaintiffs want to go there. And, you know, th- there's a provision in the SEA that's really, I think, uh, possibly may decide this case. And it, it's the safe harbor provision. And it I wanted to get to that. So this is good. This sure. came up a lot. So how does that with this? And, I, you know, I think, it, I think it may be the key to the case. So the safe harbor pr- provision in the SAA says uh, that civil penalties will not be assessed for railroads uh, that are moving degrees, right? <laughs> Do you want to you want to start that over? No, go, go ahead. <laughs> okay. All right. So uh, the, the SAA has a safe harbor provision that says that railroads will not be assessed civil penalties um, if they are moving defective equipment to a place of repair. And it's, you know, it's supposed to encourage railroads to do what they should do, which is move defective and thus dangerous equipment and go get it fixed. But they're still responsible for any injuries that result in, in that movement. The LIA doesn't have a similar provision. Um, and you know, we think that is really important uh, because obviously it sets up a contrast between the two, um, but also because even the plaintiff's reading of the SAA is faulty because what is the point of having a safe harbor provision that protects railroads partially against um, moving defective equipment if the key to that protection isn't the movement of the equipment right makes perfect sense they're, they're not going to be otherwise the second um, a vehicle a rail car whatever it becomes defective they're in violation of the saa and subject to penalties it doesn't make any sense so the protection, I want to make sure I understood the safe harbor because I was a little, yeah. it wasn't quite clear. 
So let's so the locomotive breaks down. Something happens. It doesn't work. It's got to get moved to the roundhouse. Right. In the process of moving the locomotive from where it ever that problem is discovered to the roundhouse, if an injury should occur during that period, the the uh, railroad is immune. Is that, is that is that it, or do I have it wrong? There, you're, you're almost there. They're immune from civil penalties, but ah. the SAA still applies, and they can be sued under for strict liability. The LIA doesn't have that, which tells okay. us that the LIA allows, um, or you know, d doesn't apply when uh, or applies only when the locomotive is being used, and thus doesn't apply in a situation like this. The, the relevance to us of the, of the of the absence of the safe harbor provision is just that contrast. And the language is the same in terms of the use. It's just the, whether there's a safe harbor in the SAA for movement under those particular circumstances for civil penalties. Uh, yeah, if I understand your question correctly, the, 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 the language in the two statutes isn't identical, but they both use the term use. The LAA, interestingly, also says um, it must be used and safe to operate, which I think is also important, right? What, is, what do locomotives do when they're operating? They're not being hauled, they're doing the hauling. What about this? Oh, go ahead, Dan, I'm sorry. I was gonna say a, a couple of questions of, of again, of the appellant, Kavanaugh uh, referred to this yeah. as it's a tough case for that reason, given again, these definitions, and like you said, that there's no safe harbor. And I think Alito hit it on the head at, at page 30, if you look at the transcripts, he said, our decision to grant review in this case would not have achieved very much if all we do is to, to decide that this particular locomotive was or was not in use based on particular facts of this case. Again, I think that Alito kind of hit it on the head, right? He's trying to figure out, like, to your point, Jonathan, does, does the SEA and, and that safe harbor and the differences, right, or should, should they adopt that kind of language, right? I think this is yeah. our opportunity to kind of hit that on the head. Yeah, so, the, you know, these these laws are more than a century old and no one's ever really figured out the interplay between them. And that's, that's what I think justice Alito was getting at. And there's one question. My understanding is, is, is there's no workers comp for railroad employees, right? This is the, the feel is there, is there a workers comp equivalent, right? Correct. There, there have been attempts to um, put a workers comp regime in place, but interestingly, they've been opposed by everyone involved plaintiffs and defense side. And this goes back, but my wife worked for, for a decade at the uh, Railroad Retirement Board, and they have their own retirement plan. Mm -hmm. They're not part of the pension system, so it's a whole different railroads. Like you said, when they were in their heyday, they were kind of the, the majority of, you know, most capital and most, like, you know, uh, transportation, and they have all these very old laws that still seem to, to, to uh, you know, I guess not be fully resolved, right? We're here, you know. And, yeah, and yeah, you know, that's that's what's really remarkable. When you go back, if, if we were to go back, say, 50, 60, 70 years and look at um, look at most court stockets across the country, railroad law was one of the most prevalent issues um, being litigated. It was the, the intellectual property law of its day. It was just everywhere. Right. And it's really remarkable that in all that time, you know, <laughs> since like the Wilson administration, before the Wilson administration, this question hasn't been addressed. Right. Well, we're getting to it now. Uh, the, <laughs> better late than never. Apropos of uh, you're going to build in on the question you mentioned, Kavanaugh. One of the difficult questions that Kavanaugh seemed to pose was there was a change to one of the statutes that took out the word "move" in 1924. Did, did I catch that right? 
And, and that was something that sounded like, I, I can't remember which statute it was that got removed, but that seemed to be something that, uh, I think that may have what prompted me to say that's what makes this case a difficult case, is that there's this, yep. this language that got removed. Tell What's that language and what statute and what's that about? So that was a phrase in the Locomotive Inspection Act. Uh, and after it was, it, the language originally said something to the effect of, um, you know, the locomotive must be in use and moving in interstate commerce. Um, that led to a lot of disputes over what what trains, what locomotives were and were not in interstate commerce. And you, the, uh, really uh, an exhaustive examination of facts, trying to figure out train schedules, whether the train ever crossed state borders. Um, there was also complications because there were operators of trains um, that weren't railroads and didn't fall under this uh, statutory regime, but used railroad tracks, um, something that doesn't really occur anymore. And so what Congress was trying to do, the legislative history, I think is fairly clear, is they were just trying to take that issue off the board and saying, look, the railroad industry is all interstate. It's not intrastate. Um, it's all part of, you know, it, this goes hand in hand with the development of, uh, you know, the Commerce Clause um, in the first half of the 20th century as well. So they were just trying to simplify that issue take it off the board. We don't think, um, and I think legislative history supports us on this, uh, think that it, it means that they were trying to take the movement aspect out of the analysis and what constitutes use. They were trying to take out the disputes over whether the thing was moving in, in or you have to read the clause as a whole, moving in right. interstate commerce. Got it. Okay. Precisely. All right. That, that seems, now, uh, the argument for your side was at the, at the Supreme Court was, was done by whom? Scott Ballinger. Uh, he teach he runs the appellate clinic at UVA Law, and I, I, I did, so he came in. He got involved at the cert stage, or at the, or once cert was granted, he got involved at the cert stage. Yep, he used to be with Latham and Watkins, uh, outstanding um, appellate lawyer, former Scalia clerk. Very good. He, he, yeah, he he got uh, he got some difficult questions and 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 and, de- and dealt with them dealt with them very well. His argument it, it, it was at my imagination. Or was his argument a whole lot shorter than the argument of both the government and uh, counsel for the petitioner combined? I mean, they had you over know, an hour between the two of them, and he seemed to have about a half hour. And oh, before you had, knew it, yeah. and before you knew it, they were back to uh, petitioner's counsel. Yeah, I think they had just for their opening arguments. I think over seventy-five minutes, which wasn't supposed to happen. They were supposed to get thirty-five minutes between the two of them, um, yeah. but. Plaintiff's counsel was given a lot of leeway, which, you know, isn't always a bad thing. As you guys know, the, the right. general wisdom at the Supreme Court level is the side that gets more questions uh, is in some trouble. That's the, re- you know, the received wisdom on it doesn't always end up being the case. But uh, but yeah, I mean, we, we would have liked another half an hour. That would have been nice. Yeah, the argument went for an hour, an hour and 40 minutes total. Um, yeah. It was much longer than I think I, when I looked at this. I mean, you got to be kidding me. The, the issue is so narrow, and they spent but they spent a hundred minutes on it. We've we've talked about this, Pat, yeah. in the, in, the, in the in the new format. It 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 takes much longer because there's a free for all kind of, and then there's the by seniority, and and it just goes on and on anymore. You know, it used to be, you know, Roberts was was pretty efficient back in the days when they were live, like an hour. If you had twenty minutes, thirty minutes, you know, that was it. Now. You know, Rehnquist was famous for he would cut people off in mid sentence. That was it. No, no, like you can't finish. That was it. But in this new regime, 
with COVID, it seems like, well, they got nothing else to do. So they, some of these arguments go on for two and a half hours, right? I mean, I've listened to some that, you know, it's just crazy. It's like, this is like the old days schools of, you know, uh, 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 Daniel Webster speaking for three days in front of the Supreme Court on, on Dartmouth, you know? <laughs> which, which, you know, it, I love frankly i i like yeah. that it's not strictly time limited um this this is an incredibly important issue for the railroad industry and at a time when we're having all kinds of supply chain issues it's important that trains run on time um yeah. and you know this could if the decision comes down against us this could really affect railroad logistical operations because think about this if, if the plaintiffs were to win this case then that means that railroads need to inspect every single locomotive they have across the country every single day because those locomotives would be considered in use regardless of whether they're scheduled to go on a run anywhere if they're parked on the siding for months they still need to be inspected every day railroads don't have that kind of manpower or logistical capability i i, I don't know what they would do yeah no that's that seems like an extensive thing the, the other thing that we had in this case was was maybe one of the final uh pop culture references from, from Justice Breyer. He talked about the little engine that could yeah. <laughs> at some point in the argument. And today, uh, he was sentimental today. He was, uh, Paul Clement was arguing a case about the PAGA and uh, his first case was, was referenced in this, in the oral argument from today. And uh, Paul Clement had a hard time at uh, talk about a hard, a lot of questions. They, they didn't seem to be buying. We've talked about Paul Clement before in this show, but they didn't seem to be buying his argument that he was uh, uh, arguing today for the appellants. So, uh, well, if Paul Clement's having a hard time, that sure makes me feel better about uh, anything that may have gone down Monday. Yeah, he he uh, he. The last time I think we talked about him in particular on the show was he had the the, the gun case earlier in the fall, the rebuttal. and and his rebuttal was just masterful. Um, yeah, and and uh, so it sounds like today he uh, had a tougher, a much. A much rougher ride than he did back in the fall. Um, I didn't hear he his is, rebuttal, a, but but uh, yeah, if, if 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 his case and his argument in chief was was uh, a lot of questions and skepticism, um, Kagan and others were saying, "Well, this is not an issue here. We're we're not dealing with the FAA today." <laughs> so we'll see. <laughs> so, Jonathan, is there anything else as we wrap up? Anything else you want to add? Uh, other issues we didn't get to? Um, Justice Thomas being wrapped around an axle. Um, as he said, uh, anything else, this argument that we, we touched on or we need to touch on in order for folks to have a flavor of, of what happened? Of what the I, think you guys, I think you guys did a great job covering it. Well, thank you. Well, it's all how your fault, we, so thank how you. How are we going to make predictions, you and I? No, we're not making a prediction. Nah, I, we'll I, make predictions. Yeah, I, just hope, I just hope, given it's an eight-justice uh, eight court, that it's not, a, it's not a split. Although Jonathan may like to have a split. You'd be very happy. I, I, <laughs> You're very happy with this split. Four four sounds good to you. <laughs> it, it does, and you know that that probably bears some quick explanation for the audience, right? So, um, in order for the plaintiffs to win, they need five votes because uh, you know uh, that's how the court works. It's an odd number, but because of Jared's, Justice Barrett's recusal and the rule that tie goes to runner, all we need is four votes for the Seventh Circuit opinion to be upheld. But we need five votes if we want to make good law on it. So, right, uh, sure. we, we have we have more ways to win than the plaintiffs. That's true. You, you, you want to make good law, but you also want to win the case. So right. there's a, <laughs> yeah. Was it, was this your first appearance, Jonathan, before the Supreme court? It was, it was quite the experience. Well, congrats. Yeah. Congratulations. Congratulations. To be commended and 
best of luck to you. And, uh, Indeed. Best, best of luck. Uh, thank you for coming on the show and we'll have a, another regular episode uh, this Sunday uh, with, uh, with lots to talk about. So thank you, Jonathan, for joining us. Thanks for having me guys. It was fun. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.